As we come now to the scripture, let me ask you please um, to pray with me. Father in heaven, now we come to your word and um, hmm, should be marveling to do such a thing, should be amazed to do such a thing. Uh, So I pray that uh, even after this time that we have worshipped and will continue to worship now by listening, that you will put us in the you have put us, will put us in the right frame of mind to receive from you. I pray for me and for us that we never take this for granted, but always receive a thrill from realizing that you've written to us. May we listen well, and thus, even as we come to your table, may we be ready. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Open, please, if you have a Bible or whatever it is that you read from, Matthew chapter 16. It's a little bit different than I have in the bulletin. Uh, So I want to read a relatively long passage, beginning with Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, through Matthew chapter 17, verse 13. Okay, so we'll bookend with the 13s. I'll explain in a minute why I changed what I'm going to read. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 then. Hear the word of God. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and to be killed on the third day and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? What shall... Which shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he's done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, 
and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now, to take this up, really, this passage we call has been called the Transfiguration. I want to take it up, and I, I do that because it's kind of the swan song for us with Elijah. Uh, we've been in these narratives about Elijah from First Kings and early in Second Kings, and, and we find that Elijah pops up again in various places uh, very significantly here. So I want to take it up. Now, I'm reading this section beginning uh, in chapter 16 uh, because I think that this uh, passage of the transfiguration needs that to understand it. I was going to read what follows after that because I think it applies there, but we won't have time to get to all of that. So in choosing uh, on Friday, I was thinking I would read the end of it and then uh, yesterday thought, no, I'll read the beginning of it, maybe second service. I'll read the end of it and come back. Uh, but, but that's where my head is right now, at least, to, to read the, to have read the beginning uh, the beginning part of it, frankly. And uh, uh, you see, it, it's interesting when Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they said, you know, gave out a number of different uh, names, John the Baptist being one of them, which has always been really curious to me since at least at some uh, time, John the Baptist and Jesus were contemporaries, at least until John was killed. And so you wonder about that one. Didn't they get the message about John uh, being there and baptizing Jesus and all of that and then being killed? But whatever, some said he must be John the Baptist. Others said Elijah. Others said Jeremiah. Those two make a great deal of sense uh, because of something that Moses had said way back in uh, Deuteronomy and uh, chapter 18, uh, Moses writes about <clears throat> another prophet coming. In verse 15 of Deuteronomy 18, we read this. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Uh, just, as, uh, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right in what they've spoken. I'll raise up for them a prophet like you, that is like Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. 
And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so there was this expectation that uh, a prophet like Moses would come so that when Jesus comes on the scene and he asks the question, who do people say that I am? It's no real surprise that they would speak of prophets, either Elijah or Jeremiah. Perhaps they thought John the Baptist and they would be right and they're thinking he was a prophet as well. And, and so they would, they would list him in all of that. In fact, when John came on the scene, that is John the Baptist came on the scene initially, they asked him who he was. And they asked him if he was the prophet thinking, are you the one about whom Moses had spoken? Um, they even asked him if he was Elijah, and he said, no, we'll talk about that in a little while, because in one sense he was. But this expectation that a prophet would come in, and, and, and they had a real expectation that Elijah would be that prophet, and, 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 and they did so because of what the prophet Malachi wrote. For instance, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God says, but I, uh, behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. In other words, he says, listen, there's going to be one who's going to come and he's going to prepare the way of the Lord because the Lord's saying, I'm going to come. And when I come, you'll know it because I'll come in holiness and righteousness to purify. Um, and then in chapter 4 of Malachi, um, we read this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all even do, evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness, righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, and you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord. So Malachi is setting up something, obviously, isn't it? Someone's going to come. He says God's going to come himself. One's going to come to make preparation. So he goes on like this. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. He says, remember Moses? They'd be thinking about Moses as another like him was going to come and the covenant that God made with, 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 with the Ten Commandments and all of that. Verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So he says, before this final judgment, I'm going to send Elijah the prophet. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree under destruction. In other words, he's going to bring the people back. He's going to bring the people back into unity with one another. And so that was the expectation. So when Jesus comes on the scene and says, who do people say that I am? And if they pop up with a prophet's name and they pop up with Elijah, well, we can see uh, where that thinking originates. They were expecting him. Then, of course, uh, 
Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter comes up with the answer because Jesus isn't this Elijah. There's an Elijah that's come who's made preparation for him to come. He is the Lord. And so uh, Peter's able to say, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so we receive at this moment a revelation to Peter and from Peter. It was a revelation to Peter because Jesus said to Peter, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. So this was a revelation to you, Peter, and then a revelation from him to, to announce who Jesus, who Jesus is. And then after all of that, we come and then Jesus begins to tell his disciples about what's going to come. Notice in chapter 16, verse 21. He said, from that time, he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day. So he says, this is what's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to go and, and, and suffer, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to be raised on that third day. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you know this history of Jesus' life. You know that Peter was upset by that. And he said, essentially, no, I won't let that happen. I won't let them kill you. And Jesus rebukes Peter, but he does it as, in this very famous way. He says, get behind me. He doesn't say, get behind me, Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. Now, why that? Why that kind of rebuke? Why does he equate what Peter has said to Satan? Well, the reason is that the temptations that Satan put to Jesus were temptations to keep him from going to the cross. In other words, he came to Jesus on an occasion and he, and he says, look out over all the kingdoms of the world. You can have those if you fall and worship me. In other words, you can have the kingdom uh, without going through the cross. And that's exactly what Peter was doing. Peter was saying to Jesus, no, 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 we'll keep you from that. And Jesus, in a sense, saying, no, I've got to go through the cross. You can't keep me from going through the cross. If I'm going to, to, to establish the kingdom of God, I've got to go through this. Don't stop me. The only one lately that I've been listening to who has been trying to stop me is Satan. You're acting just like he is acting. And so, Peter, get behind me, Satan. See? And then Jesus after tells of his own suffering, lays it out to them as well. He says, yes, there is a cross in my immediate future, and there's a cross in yours. If you want to be my disciple, you must take up your cross. By that, you must deny your sinful self. You must take up your cross and follow me. Now, just in the same way, the cross of Jesus will bring great glory. This life of denying your sinful self and following after Jesus brings great glory as well. Because he says, listen, do the math. What will it profit you not to do that? What will it profit you not to follow me? It'll, you'll get the whole world, and you'll lose everything. You'll get the whole world, you'll lose your soul. But if you follow after me, if you deny your sinful self, if you follow after me, then You'll gain your life, your very soul. And then he ends this section by saying, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now that, of all the curious things that Jesus has just said, is perhaps the most curious one. How is anybody going to see all of this, those who are standing there, see Jesus come into his kingdom. We might think, well, he's referring to these resurrection appearances and some will see him in the kingdom of God. Yes, then come and you go, yes, but, but there's something more immediate going to take place. 
And that's what happens here next on this mountain. Jesus, quite like Moses in that passage, that long passage I read to you before our confession, Moses takes primarily three men with him. Up on the mountain, oh, there's the 70 elders as well, but, but these three particular ones he takes up and he sees the very glory of the Lord. It is to wait for six days, but then he sees it. Well, here it's six days after Jesus had told them all of this. And he takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them uh, up to this mountain. Now, we always ask why Peter, James, and John, and he doesn't say, of course. We know that they go with him often when he's going to go off, especially to pray. They're going to go with him in the Garden of Gethsemane and in some future time when Jesus contemplates very closely his crucifixion, and he takes them again, Peter, James, and John. They seem to be, in some sense, his inner circle. Peter, who always seems to be the spokesman for for, for the disciples, he's the one who speaks on their behalf, uh, probably what they're thinking, but they're smart enough not to say it. Uh, that's Peter. And, and James, of course, we don't know quite why. He becomes the first, uh, really, apostle who's killed. Uh, we find as we read through the book of Acts, this James is killed. And, and then, then, of course, John, the beloved John, seems to have this place in Jesus' heart. Regardless, there they are up in this mountain. Uh, we don't know which mountain. There's a few options there, but that's not important. They go up in a mountain. They go high enough so you get the sense that they're going to be isolated. No one's going to be able to see them there. They go high on this mountain. And mountains in the scripture, when you read, when you read about a mountain in scripture, it's almost always significant. Almost always we're going to find a revelation of God in that place, uh, a place where God's going to reveal himself, show himself. He's going to be worshipped in that place. So up on this mountain is, 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 is where we find. And, and they go up. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but Luke does, as Luke relays this incident. They go up on the mountain to pray. You mean pray about What? We don't know. Could be, likely to be, because Jesus often retired to pray. And on the next occasion when he takes these three disciples to pray, it's to pray about his impending death. He's just spoken of his death. That's what's on his mind. And so he takes them up perhaps to, to pray about that which is to come, to pray about this, this, this crucifixion. And we realize, of course, Jesus being God, yet still man, and he's facing this death. And so he's dependent always upon his Father working in him by the Spirit. And this Trinitarian economy, this Trinitarian relationship, Jesus has come. And as I read from Philippians chapter 4, he emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Now, that doesn't mean he emptied himself as a, of his deity, but he emptied himself as his, as his right to glory. And in coming as a man and taking on this flesh at this point in time, making himself utterly dependent upon his Father, utterly dependent upon the Spirit. And so he would come and say, only say the things the Father has said, only do the things the, I see the Father doing. Uh, you know, apart from him, I can do nothing. And so here he is. And so when he retires to pray, it's real praying. It isn't just model praying, does this so that other people will see them. That's the way I ate vegetables for years, <laughs> just so my children would see that and think vegetables were good. Now that they're gone, whew. but anyway, that's another thing. But, but it wasn't just model praying, oh, Jesus prays, we better pray. It was real praying. When he went off to pray, he prayed. 
We see it in John 17 as that great prayer is recorded. We, we see it in that Gethsemane experience. We see his real gut praying. He knew because of the incarnation, his weakness that he shared with human beings. And he knew that human beings must be strengthened by God. And so, so he would pray. So he goes up to the mountain to pray. And in the midst of that, that, uh, that, that, that time of, of praying, he's transfigured. That's a wonderful word. Metamorphosis is the word that we get from that particular Greek. We, a change takes place, a change in his appearance. He doesn't become someone he's never been, but, but, but if there's a change in his appearance, uh, transit moves across a boundary figure. His figure changes, and, and, and it says it changes so that he shines uh, like his face shines like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. See, we see Jesus as he, as he really, as he really is. And he has that moment of experience, if you will, where in one sense he goes back in time, another sense he goes forward. He goes back in time, and he, he knows then it's revealed the glory that is that was his before the foundations of the earth, before this incarnation that is now veiled. And there's a sense in which this is his ascended glory as well, the glory that he'll know uh, after all is said and done, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, on the ascension, as he rules and reigns, the very, the very glory of Christ. Well, we, we, we didn't see that when he came to earth. Scriptures say of him that, 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 that you would look at him and, and you would just see a guy. You would know by looking at him that he's really the son of God. Every once in a while, there'd be glimpses of his glory. When a miracle would happen, you'd see his glory. But, but if you just looked at Jesus and you walked down the street, um, you wouldn't realize that he was God in the flesh. That great, and I've used this time and time again because I love this expression. It just feeds my soul from Charles Wesley's Christmas hymn. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. You see, he was veiled. For the, so you won't spend the rest of the, That's hark the herald angels sing. So you won't go, what was that? That's what it was from. But you see, that, that's this sense of, of, of veiledness of Jesus. And so there's a sense in which when he went up on that mountain at that moment in time, for whatever reason, the veil, if you will, was lifted and Jesus experienced and they got to see, Peter, James, and John did, Jesus in all of his glory. And the scripture says his light shone whiter than white uh, and the sense of light shining. It, it came from within this light. It wasn't a reflection. And when Moses would go up the mountain and come down on occasion, the scripture said his face would shine. And, and that, was, that was like a God burn, if you will. I mean, that, that, was, that, that, was, that was this, 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 he was in the presence of God and so you, you knew it. And, and so his face would reflect the fact that he had been in the presence of God. When Jesus shone, it was from within. It was, it was him, if you will, shining. It wasn't a reflection. It was, it was who he is. Thus, when we read later, all the way back in the book of Revelation, that there'll be no sin, the new earth, there'll be no need for a, a sun or a moon or any of that. Why? Because Jesus will be in the midst of her. And he'll shine and we'll see everything in him and everything by him, you see. 
He's the light of the world. And so that's what they see. They see this Jesus, as we read in our uh, call to worship this morning from John chapter 1. John would never forget this scene, obviously, and thus he comes to write uh, his gospel. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And then these words of great significance. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. And we think, well, yes, you saw his glory uh, that time and the resurrection appearances, but, but, but it may well be that John is remembering this time we saw his glory, glory as of the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Peter, as well, would write of this time in Second Peter, in chapter 1, after writing his first epistle about the suffering church and to the suffering church, and then writing now about how they needed to be reminded of, of all that is true that we have in him, uh, all that we need for life and godliness. He, in essence, Peter says, you can trust these words, and here's why, verse 16 of 2 Peter 1. He says, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, I have to tell you, when I read that, my head immediately goes to resurrection appearances of Jesus, eyewitnesses of that, but here's how he puts it, verse 17. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. This event in Peter's life said, yes, he's the Christ. We've seen his glory. We've seen his glory. Because he said it was veiled, as I, as I read in, from Philippians in, in chapter 2 this morning, this, this person of Jesus, he says, of Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing that has emptied himself of this right to his own glory, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, you see. That's what they saw, except on this mountain. What they saw on this mountain was this glory that Jesus had before the foundation of the world that was his, this glory that would be his when he ascended. The glory that's described here at the end of this passage. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus, that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In other words, a day will come when everyone will see Jesus and know that he's the Lord. All will know that. Some will know that unto their salvation. Others will know that unto their judgment but all will know it. There'll be no injustice. All will know who are condemned that Jesus is the Lord 
and has the right to condemn them. And all will know who make that pronouncement that Jesus is Lord unto their salvation will know that he has the right to condemn them. But because he is Savior, the one who gave himself for them, and they believe that he is Lord and they will worship, you see. But, but, but that's, again, what these disciples are seeing as they put it on this, on this holy mountain. Now, amazingly, Moses and Elijah show up as well. And that's why we're here, because of the whole Elijah connection. But, but why Moses and Elijah? Why not, why not Abraham and Joseph? Why not Isaiah? I'd love to talk to him. Or Ezekiel? Wow. What a life, you know? That would have been good. But they come, and, and they're there, and they're talking. Um, Matthew doesn't tell us what they're talking about. Luke does. Luke records what they were talking about. And, and here's how Luke puts it. He says, And behold, two men were talking with him, with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so they're talking about Jesus' departure in Greek. They're talking about Jesus' exodus. Now, Moses would know a lot about that. He would know a lot about exodizing, wouldn't he? Or exodising. I don't know which would be better. Exodizing sounds like something the dry cleaner does. Um, departing. Taking those who are in slavery into a land of promise. Taking those who are in bondage into a land of inheritance. And what was Jesus about to do? He was about to take those who are in bondage to sin into a land of glory, into an inheritance of promise, you see. That's what he used to do. Do you even think of that? And you wonder, why did they need to do that? We don't quite know. Perhaps this was an answer to Jesus' prayer as he's been praying, God, I'm going to be crucified. This is all going to happen. Can you strengthen me? Can you help me with this? I, I need, I'm dependent upon you. And so the Father says, here's what I'll do. I'll show you who you are, pre-incarnate glory and who you will be this glorious son of man i'll give you a glimpse of that jesus a taste of that to fortify you to strengthen you to know as you're going through all of this this is what's to come so that you can go to the cross with joy the joy set before you yes you'll save people from their sins yes you'll please me your father and you know that i won't abandon you to the grave because the day will come when you'll rise and you'll ascend and you'll be glorious and i'll restore to you the glory that was yours has been yours is yours even before the foundations of the world and so so he gets that can you only imagine that moment of saying oh yes this is what it feels like to be me <laughs> this is what it's really like this is who i really am and then to talk to two people who understand this as opposed to his disciples who aren't getting it moses and elijah and there they are discussing all of this, all that's going to take place, the precursors to all of that. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great law restorer, the one who comes and calls people to repentance so that they'll, 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 they'll reconnect, if you will, with God through his covenant. These two coming of all the ones, yes, these two to come, Moses and Elijah. 
And then, of course, Peter again speaks out and says, hey, I know what we can do here. Let's, let's stay here. Let's build little tabernacles. Perhaps it was close to the time of the Feast of Tabernacles when the Israelites would build little booths and stay in them to remember the Exodus. Perhaps that's what was on his mind. Although Mark and Luke both say Peter spoke and he didn't know what he was saying. Duh. I'll give Peter a little break here. I mean, after all, it's not every day you go up in a mountain and you see the glorious Christ unveiled with Moses and Elijah. And so he says, basically, all right, uh, perhaps uh, let's stay here. And maybe this too. Elijah's here. And we heard he was supposed to come before the great day of the Lord. And now that Elijah's here to restore all things, maybe that will mean that Jesus doesn't really have to die. That's on Peter's mind too. He didn't want Jesus to die. He, he wanted to keep him from that and very natural, normal, human kind of thing, not understanding the nature of the cross. And here we are again. Peter's saying, let's stay here. I can build these places of worship these, to, to house you, if you will, tabernacles to, to contain the very glory of God right here in this place. And, and this is it. This is, this is what's to come. It's come. But then God kind of overruled in the midst of that. Jesus didn't have to say anything because while Peter was still speaking, there was a great cloud that overshadowed them, that them probably includes the disciples and Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And a voice came from that cloud saying, this is my Son, with whom I'm well pleased, listen to him. And when the cloud left, it was just Jesus. So Peter, they're not on par. They don't all need their little houses to contain glory. Jesus is the one. He overshadows them all. And this cloud overshadowed them. And then what that means is the cloud, the very presence of God was there. This is the cloud that went before the, the Israelites as they left Egypt. This was the cloud that met Moses on the mountain. This is the cloud that came and filled the first tabernacle tent of meeting that was built. This is the cloud that, that was in the temple that Solomon built. Uh, this is even the cloud that left the temple in the days of Ezekiel when the people were, were so idolatrous that the cloud of God left slowly out of the temple and left them. This is the very presence of God, you see. And it says it overshadowed them. That's the same word that's used about the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary to conceive this child in her, Jesus. Over, means, overshadow means to envelop, means you enter, it enters, you, you, you enter into it, you see. It wasn't just some random fog that happened on this mountain. This is the very presence of God. So in one sense, the fog was lifting. On the other sense, the fog was coming. The fog that lifted was the confusion. The fog that came, the cloud, was the very uh, presence, the very presence of God. And then when the disciples heard all of this, they became terrified. Why? They were in the very presence of God. And Jesus touches them, and thus their fear can leave. It wasn't the first time they were terrified. You remember, there was a time in the life of the disciples when they were on a, on a boat and going across the sea, and, and a great storm came up. And they were afraid, and many of them were fishermen, so to make a fisherman afraid of a bad storm, it must have been a huge storm. 
be like a race car driver saying, oh, we're going too fast, right? So they were in the boat, storm comes up. They say, we're going to die. This is the worst storm we've ever seen. This will kill us. And Jesus is asleep. So they go to get Jesus in their terror of being killed. And they say, don't you care about us? You remember what Jesus did? He stood up and he got up and he looked around and he said, you know, peace. And the storm stilled and the, the, the sea just, just, just became like glass. It was just very still. And what was the response of the disciples then? They were more scared, more terrified than they were of the storm. Why? Because the storm was powerful enough. Now they met one more powerful than the storm. If the storm could kill them, what could Jesus do to them? The good news is, he's merciful and gracious. The good news was, he touched them, lifted them up. And then, going down the mountain, they began to, to hear from Jesus. He said, don't tell anybody until I'm resurrected. In other words, nobody will understand this until then. So, so just keep this quiet till then. But then the disciples started musing again about Elijah. And, 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 and they said, and when Jesus said that he must, uh, uh, not to talk about this, uh, and, until he, the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him then, then why did the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they didn't recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. You see, when John the Baptist was born, his father was given this information. He'll be of the spirit of Elijah. And so many will be restored. And why? Because he'll preach repentance. He'll, he'll make the way of the Lord. But there's something else that John the Baptist did. He foreshadowed the suffering of Christ in his own suffering. He was killed. And Jesus said, you know, Elijah's already come. And they did to him whatever they wished. That is, they killed him. The same thing's going to happen to me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and they're going to do to me whatever they wish. I must suffer and die. Now, what do we make of all this? We make of all this, this. The graciousness of God, he shored up Jesus, firmed up Jesus, gave him strength by saying, I know what you're about to suffer. This is what's going to happen. You will be glorified. And you see, when the disciples entered into that glory of God, there's a sense in which he was saying to them the same. You will suffer too. You're going to take up your cross. This life isn't going to be easy. You're going to be struggling with sin and the effects of sin. Your own sin you must turn away from and deny yourself that. Put it to death. You're going to be affected by the sins of others. People will say things about you. People will do things to you. And you'll be impacted just by the sin that's here, disease and all of that and the frailty of humanity. All of that is going to be true for your life. But a day will come, you see, when you will be glorified. This is going to be true for you as well. And that glory doesn't come without cross. First, the cross of Jesus. He comes to atone for our sins so that we can enter in. And that as we live, we know that we've entered in. C.S. Lewis, in a little essay called The Weight of Glory, 
speaks not of this particular incident so much, but he, but he speaks of the fact that these disciples uh, enter into worship. And when we enter into this worship, uh, then we can persevere. He writes this. He says, this, the sense that in this universe we're treated as strangers, the longing to be acknowledged, to meet with uh, some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of a, our inconsolable secret. In other words, we walk around going, there's got to be more to this than this. I feel like an alien in this world. And surely, he says, from this point of view, the promise of glory in the sense described becomes highly relevant to our deep desire for glory meant good rapport with God, acceptance by him, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open to us at last. And then our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door which we've always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fantasy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. At present, we're on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. But all the leaves of the New Testament are wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, <laughs> we shall get in. And we shall, and see, that's the promise of the transfiguration. That's the promise to Jesus. You'll go through this cross. You will be glorified. That's the promise to us. We will go through this cross. But we will be enveloped, overshadowed by the presence of God and glorified. And that's where our gaze must be. As, as David writes in his Psalms, Psalm 27, he writes, he writes this, the Lord is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That moment, Peter, James, and John got to gaze into this beauty, this glory of the Lord. And that's how we're to live. Don't you think that when David had to fight Goliath, he wasn't looking at Goliath, but he was gazing on the glory of the Lord. Don't you believe that when Saul was coming after David, his adversary, Saul was David's primary adversary, the king was against him. Don't you know that when Saul came against him, that, that the gaze of David's on his good days was upon the Lord, not upon Saul. Don't you know that when the spies went out from the land, there were 12 of them, 10 of them came back, said, we can't go. Why? Because their gaze was on the giants. 
Don't you know that for Caleb and Joshua, they came back and said, we can go. Why? Because their gaze was on the Lord. He was bigger than the giants. Don't you know that when Jehoshaphat saw all the armies around him ready to devour him, he went and stood before them. His gaze wasn't on the armies anymore. It was on the Lord. Don't you know that when Jesus went to the cross, his gaze was not upon his punishers and accusers, but his gaze was upon his father who would not abandon his soul. And that's true for us. And so we come to gaze upon the glory of the Lord. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread after giving thanks, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup and after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. There's a sense in which Jesus is saying, when you do this, look at me. When you do this, think of me. When you do this, your gaze should be upon me. Why? Because through this cross comes his glory. Because in the midst of this cross, what do we see? The very glory of God. We see his, his supreme holiness. He punishes sin. But we see his wondrous love. Because he puts it not upon us, but on his son. And we see the glory of Jesus who takes it so that his father may be vindicated and that we may be saved. And then we gaze upon this and we think of his resurrection, which pronounces that all that he did is true, that sins are forgiven, they've been paid for, believe, he's resurrected, He ascends and rules and reigns. And now he says, trust me. Listen to all that I say. Listen when I say that you're a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God. Listen when I say that I'm the savior of sinners. Trust in me. Listen when I say take up your cross. Put to death all that is true of your sinful self. Come and follow me. Listen, he says. This is where life is. This is where the presence of God is. This is where ultimate glory is. And he says, listen, the day will come, for those who believe in me, when you'll see it, when when sins will be forgiven, and you'll experience all of that, you'll enter into my presence, and that for all eternity, the earth will be renewed, you'll live, there'll be no sin, everything will reflect me. Think about that when they speak against you. Think about that when your sin comes against you. Think about that when those you love give you pain. Think about that when you feel hopeless and helpless to help anyone. Think about that when when disease overtakes you and those you love. Think about that when you see injustice. Think about the glory that is to be revealed because you see this present suffering doesn't compare anything to the glory that will be revealed. Do you know Jesus knew that at that moment in time? He 
His father was gracious to give him just a taste of it again. And it carried him through. And we were to have a taste of it as well. To carry us through. Let's pray. Father, pray now that you would set aside this bread and this juice and this time together. Even as we come to worship, we may see your glory. You know, a day is coming when we'll see it, see it. Now we see it by faith to enable us to get it, to understand it, to comprehend it, to know it, even as we come to this table. So may this bread and juice give us a great sense of the very kindness, compassion, mercy of Jesus. And even as we come and take and eat, we know we belong to him. And that this moment would be a foretaste of that which is to come. And that your word and sacrament will sustain us for this day and the days ahead. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, to remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. It's for his people. It's for all those who really have listened to him and understand that we, we are sinners. We have no hope except in his sovereign mercy. And that we do receive and depend upon him all that is offered to us in the gospel by him, by way of his life, death, resurrection, ascension, promise of return. We desire to live a life that's consistent with that profession of faith, dependent humbly upon him. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come this uh, aisle to my left. These two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. Uh, And as you do, as you do, listen to the words of Jesus. I'm sorry, to the words of his father about Jesus when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Please come.